HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. Delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I hope every single one of them is listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today, that intersection is Hera Foods, a plant-based food company based in Europe. And, you know, prior to March of 2020, TechBytes was live broadcast to tape, which meant we sat in the Heritage Radio Network studios, repurposed shipping containers at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and we had conversations face-to-face. Sometimes we ate pizza and had drinks, and it was a great time. And for the first five or six years of TechBytes, I was convinced that the best way to produce a great conversation was to have my guests in the same room as me. Well, that all changed in March of 2020. And since then, we have done all of our shows remotely on an online platform called Zencaster. And while I don't get to see people, what that has done is given me the opportunity to talk to people who can't physically be in the studio. People like Isabel Fernandez, who is currently sitting in Barcelona. So you know, every everything has a silver lining, and this is certainly one of them. The ability to talk to people on the other side of the world about the work they're doing and what kind of trends they're seeing, even if they're working at a global business. So I want to thank Isabel Fernandez for calling in today. She is the Director of Science and Technology at Hera Foods, and Hera Foods is a company started back in 2017. They are 100% plant-based forward company. Um, we've talked a lot about plant-based foods here. And when we say plant-based, we don't mean actual plants, like not spinach ravioli, (laughs) food made from plants that you would recognize, fruits and vegetables. We're talking about plant-based versions of 
animal products like hamburgers and ice cream and milk and shrimp, for example. Um, she leads the R&D team. It's worth noting that the R&D team is comprised of all women. We love women in tech on this show. And um, really looking forward to hearing what is she is working on for the future, what kind of things are of interest to her now. And we, had, we did have a call before the show, and we did a video call, so we did actually get to have a little face-to-face -face talk time. One of the things that has become synonymous with plant-based, rightly or wrongly, I think the average consumer, the average person, perhaps many of you listeners, when you hear plant-based food, when you think of a plant-based version of a hamburger or milk or cheese, people automatically think it's going to be good. They think it's going to be a good product for them nutritionally. They think it's going to be a good product for them to eat. They think plant-based is better for the planet, better for the environment. Um, plants take less resources to raise than animals, so that makes it better. Many of the plant-forward businesses are in business because their main goal is environmental. But like so many things, plant-based doesn't necessarily mean it's nutritious and delicious. It doesn't necessarily mean it has a low energy, good environmental rating. So it is still very much a new category. And as we get more and more familiar with things, then we're going to start to have subsets within the category. And I think some of those points about plant-based and where it is and what it can be and maybe what it should not be are some of the things that Isabel and her team are looking at. So I'm really excited to talk about this category, which we've discussed quite a bit on this show over the years, um, in a little bit of a new way and start to perhaps, you know, create some uh, different standards or different ideas or different things for people to look at. You know, all plant-based is not created equal. So Isabel, um, thank you for calling in from very hot Barcelona. You're experiencing the same sort of heat wave that we've been having here in New York City and on the East Coast. Indeed. Thanks for having me. So tell us about, um, just tell us generally, first off, um, many of our listeners are, you know, New York based. We do have listeners from around the world. Hera Foods is in 20 different countries. So there may be listeners who are familiar with the products, but tell us a little bit about the company, its history, and then what you're doing now in terms of your research and development. Yeah. So, so as you said, we are um, in the plant-based space. Uh, our portfolio right now is primarily focused on uh, meat uh, analogs, but of course we have plans to expand that. And, you know, I think you, you very much were, were saying the fundamental challenges that we face around sustainability and, and nutrition. So that, that's exactly what uh, my team is working towards and, and really moving the, the needle there, making, uh, you know, exponential uh, improvements rather than, than minor, minor ones in, in this regard. So, yeah, I think that's a bit in a, in a nutshell. Of course, the, the category, the plant-based category is, is very broad. It's difficult to, to generalize. I think there are, uh, if, we specifically, if we specifically talk about the nutritional uh, challenges, it's very different talking about plant-based cheeses than, than meat, for example, right? So the cheese category has not been solved at the moment, whereas 
in the meat space, uh, we are very much, at least on the macronutrient density, we are, we are more or less okay, although we still have some clean label challenges. So basically, essentially, my main objective is to solve those uh, those challenges that are currently not possible with existing technologies and very much focusing around uh, sustainability, which is, of course, impacting cost and affordability of our products and then uh, nutrition and clean label for those categories for which we are we are not there yet. So that's a lot, a lot of things <laughs> inside one little plant-based meat item. Let's yes. let's try and unpack this all in a little bit of a systematic way so it doesn't become um, too much of a rabbit hole. So mm-hmm. plant-based people are looking at it first as something that's environmental. Many, many of the companies, certainly uh, Impossible Foods is a company that we've had on the show that is one of the first in the category in the United States to really make a broad impact The founder there, Pat Brown, his mission really is the environment. And he identified cattle and beef agriculture as being a tremendous, um, a tremendous strain on natural resources, particularly on the waterfront. So that's the initial, you know, sort of reason for being, you know, on that front. So when we hear plant-based, we think, oh, it's made from plants. It's not made from animals. It must be better for the environment. So in terms of the ingredients that go into it, and then in terms of the processing, Mm -hmm. is that necessarily the case? Where where are the endpoints in terms of something being environmentally friendly on the production side that people may or may not be aware of? Yeah, I think that that's that's really the key question. Um, I would say overall it is, I mean, especially considering how animal agriculture and how are we feeding our cows and, and you know all the life cycle assessment when you when you look at the numbers it certainly is now it's a question for me uh, now can we make it even better because yes I mean as a one-to-one comparison um, it's always more sustainable but I think there is room for improvement um, especially if we move or away from you know a lot of protein isolates and, and also like other hydrocolloids and, and that are chemically modified and, and then obviously looking at the processes around uh, isolating, extracting and purifying or modifying those ingredients, that, that's definitely not, not helping us on the sustainability aspect. So even though overall, yes, we are better, I think there is still a huge uh, room for, for improvement for sure. And that's that's essentially what uh, what we're trying to do. Um, so tackling it from from different aspects. Uh, one of them is looking at side stream valorization. So if you think about the industry as a whole, we generate uh, a lot of side streams by products that are edible uh, materials that you know they just go as waste, and there are a simple ways to valorize that. So that, that's one way of, of doing things. And the other one is, is looking at other technologies that do not involve uh, any chemical extraction or dilution and drying steps and, and, and so on. You can also do dry fractionation of proteins, for example. And there are more gentle processes that, that you can do if you put your scientific efforts on discovering uh, new plant sources or new structures that are already functional in nature, that it, it allows you to then get rid of all the 
all the ingredient process inside, which is what uh, you know bring uh, all all the the waste and all the water and all the consumption numbers up for uh, for the plant based industry. So, from a one to one point of view, plant based is much more environmentally friendly than animal agriculture and animal based. So it's a win there, but within the plant based space. Because it is a very complex, all these plant-based products are very complex recipes of ingredients, some that didn't exist before, trying to replicate just mm-hmm. something that exists naturally. So that's where in the segmentation, all of the either waste or energy comes from in creating these very new, very techy lab ingredients to make something <laughs> that replicates something that just exists in nature, which is so interesting. It's also completely the antithesis to what consumers and, and, and people have been told for so long about not eating processed foods. The mantra <laughs> for so long about good, healthy eating and being good to the planet was, you know, shop local, farmer's mm-hmm. market, minimally processed foods, you know, read your food labels. It should only have, you know five or six ingredients. They should all be ingredients that you can pronounce and recognize that are sort of whole food ingredients like a tomato or sugar or, um, you know, oatmeal. (laughs) So, I mean, just out of curiosity, how many different ingredients or elements go into making a plant-based meat? Yeah, I mean it, it depends, of course, because it's not it's not the same uh, a burger than a cold cut or or a steak. Yeah, so mm-hmm. there is uh, there's no a single answer to that. But for sure, I do agree with you. Uh, it, it's very techy or very lab oriented. Uh, of course, we are, as you well said, we are putting things together to make the same to mimic the form and and shape of animal products, and that means that from one side we. For the most part, we still work with isolated ingredients and then we assemble. Uh, it's kind of like additive manufacturing, if you will, to make these these forms and shapes. And and I think, again, as I mentioned, um, there is there is a lot of things that we need to stop doing and there is a, there are a lot of things that we need to learn and improve. I think the, the idea of mimicking the shape and form of animals makes sense uh, for many reasons, because that's also a, a way to get consumers that are uh, otherwise would not buy into the category unless you actually make something that looks, feels, and tastes like a burger, and and so so that's that's obviously something that makes sense to do. And and if you look at replicating the shape, maybe uh, thinking about the steak having the intramuscular fat or having the fibrillar protein that makes sense because it it has a huge uh, contribution to sensory and the juiciness of the product, but maybe making uh, shrimp form or an oval shape for an egg makes no sense. And so there are things that we need to rethink also as an industry because every bit of technology you put into creating those shapes is also has a contribution to, to the environment, right? And and so, so there are things we can make simple. Uh, I think, as I mentioned before, the, the greatest um, impact we can make is by stop or finding alternatives for this isolated and highly modified ingredients, uh, looking at, at, at plants as whole materials. I think that's really a bit um, uh, an area that we should be exploiting more of. 
Uh, and then obviously looking at simple process and not necessarily having to always mimic the shape and form of the meat counterpart. I mean, if it makes sense for from a sensory perspective, then yes, but otherwise uh, we could also avoid that. So let's talk about whole plant versus only part of the plant, because I think mm -hmm. that's an interesting one that really people can understand and it sort of mimics um, also what we have been told for years and years, which is use the whole thing. You know, if you're going to get a chicken, get the whole chicken, use the whole chicken in some way, shape or form, you know, cook the breast, roast the legs, use the bones for stock, all those types of things. So there is no waste in what you're using. So currently, um, you know, one of the interesting things you've been saying now is whole plant versus, you know, sort of the seeds or legumes or parts of plants and then disposing of the rest of it. So walk us through a little bit um, from that perspective on utilizing plants, you know, what's sort of the current state of usage and what you're moving towards and then what are the barriers towards utilizing the whole thing? Yeah, um, I, I can briefly explain what, what is happening right now and how, why and, and how we are using those plant ingredients. Um, so essentially, if we look at legume seeds, yeah, because that's in a way is, is, is really the source, uh, the protein source that, that, that we use. Uh, it could be pea or it could be soy or, you know, chickpea, whatever. It's always pretty much the same. So we use chemical solvents, so it's typically ethanol to remove the fat fraction. And then there is, you know, we apply uh, several dilution processes. Those are acid-based reactions to remove the starch and, and the polysaccharides and fibers so that the protein precipitates. And, and that is then you have to actually then apply a spray drying step huh, to get the powder. So this is just to get your ingredient that we as as food industry you know we buy from our suppliers and at this point we just have an ingredient that for example if we want to create fibers we need to also apply some processes you know because plant proteins in their native molecular structure are globular uh, they have a um, you know sphere type of morphology so that we need to apply another energy intense process which is extrusion in most cases to to go and and create those fibers right so that, that's what I mean, that this is like the state uh, at the moment um, that, uh, you know, the, where the industry is at uh, in terms of our ingredients. And so there are alternative emerging uh, technologies there to not go through this dilution and then drying the steps. And that is uh, dry fractionation, for example, so that that goes by air classification. So you have a way to classify particles, you know, as powders just by means of density, uh, particle shape and size and so on, so that you can already concentrate uh, your protein, so get a protein concentrate uh, without having to go through this, you know, water and usage and then for then having to dry them. So that's one of the uh, technologies that are emerging and there is a lot of research, uh, open access research already in this area that we obviously want to capitalize on. And then the other aspect that is, I think is, is very relevant is, and that's way more complex, but it's on site stream valorization. And that's not, you know, when when you deal with side streams, you're not dealing with isolated materials. Of course, you're dealing with whole plant products. Yeah. So then you have a mixture of starches, you have a mixture of starch, polysaccharides and proteins. And, and so the idea here, and I will not reveal so much what we do, but is, is look at the microstructure. So it's almost like understanding the, the product from a microstructural 
uh, from a from a whole, you know, um, a structural perspective rather than isolated ingredients, and then looking how we can leverage already existing microstructures that would have a specific functionalities, so that we don't have to isolate for them having to assemble the ingredients later on. So that that's something we are we are quite active on, and and then I think so that you know there are also techniques uh, if you think about this. Um, way of, of developing products, which is from a from a microstructure design point of view, and and I put a lot of emphasis on the microstructure because it's the structure at the micro scale, not at the nano or at the macro, that drives the texture and the functionality of the product. So that's the one where we put a lot of emphasis on. So even during the manufacturing of your products, we already have processes, obviously, and and those are you know is heat, is temperature, and sometimes we can even play with pH or ionic strength. And that gives us some means to tune already the, the microstructure of our products so that with these simple uh, changes in processing conditions, we can already uh, bring those functionalities without having to use those, again, chemically modified uh, ingredients, so typically hydrocolloids, um, for for giving the, the gel strength or, you know, all these textural attributes. So that, that's really how, how we look at it. And, and because that, I think that that's the key challenge. So in a category, and again, I, would, I don't want to generalize because you know it's, we don't have the same challenges within the plant-based industry. And as I said, you know things like dairy is facing much more challenges than, than meat. Uh, and if you look at cheese, for example, you know you see that all products are structured using starches and 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 you know saturated fats and the fact that you create a structure with these ingredients means that you cannot even add more protein so you cannot even reach the the protein density because you know it's already there's competition for water there is no water left so the fact that you use you structure your products with these ingredients means that you know intrinsically you cannot even deliver on on nutrition so you're really working for so many different aspects mm -hmm. simultaneously. You're looking That's for right. the textural look, feel, mouth feel, consistency of the product that you're replacing. You know, in the cheese category, everybody talks about, you know, is it melty? Does it have that meltability? Mm -hmm. um, you raise an interesting point about do eggs have to be round? I mean, you could make square ones and call them Japanese or something like that, I suppose, <laughs> because they're famous for, you know, the the square melons and things like that, that they grow in boxes that are very, very expensive. Um, you know, so you have, you know, on the one hand, using everything structurally from a cellular point of view to create the look and feel of mm -hmm. something, but then you also have the nutritional aspect. And again, I go mm -hmm. back to the idea that plant-based is supposed to be great and better and the better product. And while maybe it's better for the environment, just generally, has anyone really achieved the same nutritional density in meat and dairy products with plant-based foods up against the real thing? I mean, that's part of, I mean, I think that's yeah. also part of why people enjoy eating them, whether it be not necessarily at the table or, you know, in the mouthfeel and the flavor, but mm -hmm. certainly from a physical point of view, your body feels great after you have a, you know, a, a nice load of good protein. You know, I work out a lot. I love going to the gym. Um, I feel great after I work out if I have like a nice 
fat steak, you know, it recharges <laughs> my my body, I feel good. Can how how big a challenge that, is it replicating or even getting close to the nutrient density of animal products? Yeah, that, that's a great a great question. Um, yeah, the answer is quite long. So I think <laughs> let, let's go again. Is there let's a short this. yes, no, or maybe? Uh, yeah. Like, oh, uh, getting depends. close, only halfway? <laughs> I think the answer is it depends. Okay. So if we talk generally about about meat analogs and here, I would say things like, you know, like the burgers or chicken nuggets or things like that. I would say on the macro uh, nutrient density, so, you know, macro meaning protein, fats, and fibers, I'll say that the challenge has more or less been also winning that we can more or less uh, deliver. On the mi micronutrient is a different story. Uh, so, you know, we are fortifying, but again, um, I, I don't think we are exactly the same as, as the animal counterparts. When it comes to daily, for most of our products, we don't even achieve you know, the right macronutrient density, yet alone the micronutrient density. So micro meaning vitamins and minerals. So there is a lot of room for sure uh, to improve. But you know, what is interesting is that plants are incredibly rich in micronutrients, uh, both my vitamins and minerals. So it's why don't we, again, capitalize on that? And as I said, we if we use them in their whole native structure, you know, as whole materials, we can also already valorize those micronutrients that are already present in plants. Now, the problem is because of the way we are currently producing our plant-based products with these always isolated ingredients and then having to add uh, minerals and vitamins as an additive, then, you know, uh, it, it makes it all, even almost impossible to, to achieve uh, because there are certain interactions that happen as well that then affect the color or the texture or the taste. So it's not that we don't want to do it. It's just that it's also um, technologically difficult if we follow this current way of uh, manufacturing. So amazing. That chickpea that they're doing all kinds of things to just to extract that protein is probably <laughs> just a better thing just to eat the chickpea. Let's just eat chickpeas. Yeah, I cannot <laughs> argue against that. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I, I have said it many, many times mm -hmm. on this show, you know, the plant-based movement is very interesting. Um, and so many people who work in the plant-based space um, are vegan or vegetarian. And, you know, I could open, I could open an Italian restaurant or a Japanese restaurant or an Indian restaurant, and it could be entirely vegan and vegetarian, and I could do that and not even tell people. And people might not even notice because there are so many um, there are so many foods in this world to eat in their ingredients in their natural form that are delicious. You know, I mean, spaghetti pomodoro, that's vegetarian. It's amazing. It doesn't need to be processed very much at all. So it's an interesting thing that, you know, as a society and a culture, we've reached a place where the way we need to change how we eat is like we're children to like trick people into eating healthy. You know, there was that there was that movement a few years ago. Uh, people were coming out with cookbooks, you know, 
how to trick your kids into eating more vegetables. And that's when we got like cauliflower and pizza crust. And, you know, that's moved into sort of like the gluten-free space now. But Mm -hmm. there were all these recipe books and ideas of, you know, put zucchini and carrots into muffins, put these, you know, vegetables into this, put black beans into your brownies, trick your Mm -hmm. kids into eating more vegetables. I almost feel like a lot of the plant-based movement is, you know, trick adults into being more responsible for the planet by letting them think they're still eating the thing that they want. <laughs> yeah, it's a good uh, good thinking. That, that is one, one comment based on, on what you said. It's not always, again, nothing is black and white, and not everything that is processed is unhealthy and vice versa. So talking about the pizza example that you say, or the pasta pardon, uh, example that you mentioned, yes, it, it might not be a highly processed food, but... Uh, Pasta is not primarily, you know, it's not very nutrition or nutrient dense. It's, it's basically carbohydrates. It's a starch, yeah? So those starch is essentially glucose. So it, it is, if you look for nutrient density, you know, we, you need to think beyond things that are uh, processed or not processed to, to make your decisions. You have to look at, you know, again, what is the the macronutrients present there and, and prioritize always you know, proteins and healthy fats uh, versus um, carbohydrates, in this case, starches. Yeah, so again, nothing is that that, that simple, but um, yeah, I guess overall, uh, as of today, the highly processed food tend to be less health, less healthy, although it's not always the case. We are going to take a quick break and find out who the sponsor is of this show. Did you know Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit? We keep the lights on and the mics hot with the help of sponsors, grants, and members, many of whom are listeners like yourselves. And you know what? August is Member Drive Month. We are recruiting new members. What does that mean? Well, that means if you go to heritageradionetwork.org slash member, you can make a donation, join. We'll send you some swag, some inside scoop deals invitations to events. You'll get some great stuff, but more importantly, you will help us continue to talk about important things, share the mic, share the platform, record and save all of these conversations and pieces of information so we can pass it along, we can share it, and it'll be here 10 years from now for the next generation. Stay with us. I'm Chaba Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. 
Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. You are listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today we are talking with Isabel Fernandez, who is the Director of Science and Technology at Hera Foods. If you want to check out what they do and what they're about, go to herafoods.com or follow them on social media at Hera Foods. H-E-U-R-A-F-O-O-D-S. She heads up the R&D Lab, which is also a team of women, which we love, women in tech, women in food tech. Isabel, is it unusual that you are a woman leading an R&D team and your team is also women? We have men as well, so okay. we've been hiring <laughs> more people. Yeah, and so now we have a team of both female and, and and male. But yeah, I think primarily we're a female-led uh, team for sure. I mean, I'm leading the the science and technology team, but we also have a lead for the product development one, and and the uh, our CTO who is also uh, a woman. So yeah, I think. Uh, you know, it is quite rare. Yeah, I would say I, I, I come from, you know, several years in, in the food industry and very much on the research part, not so much on the development part. So the very science and engineering uh, oriented, uh, which is male dominated. So, so yeah, it's, it's quite unique uh, also for me, uh, but, but, you know, very happy and enjoying it. I think the, the way... The way female females we women we we lead teams is is very different. It's something that we should we should have more of and you know inspire others to to do the same for sure. Definitely, it's interesting in that you know so many times cooking and things like that and the kitchen are the domain of women uh, initially at the home and in our private lives. And certainly, cooking in the kitchen is sort of the first lab that everybody is familiar with. Cooking at its mm -hmm. heart is, is very scientific, especially baking. And then when we get into the professional realm and start to, you know, turn it into more of a profession and study, then somewhere along the way it becomes uh, more male-dominant, which is just fascinating, like so many other things. But what do you think the broad strokes – what are the some of the differences that you noted working in labs where you have more men, more women, or an even balance? Are there differences, or what have you noticed in your experience? Wow, that's um, you know I, I think if if 
I'm only focusing on on science and and labs and and you know my experience there. I haven't noticed many differences because that is just really about the results. It's about the quality of your ideas. It's about you know your scientific contribution. And so I haven't actually experienced any you know biases or, or really discrimination in in this regard. I think what I've seen was mainly moving towards managerial roles when you are more exposed in this uh, you know leadership positions or management positions that that's where you where you see most of this uh, unconscious biases arising but on the pure scientific environment um, yeah luckily uh, I have not I have not seen anything you know ideas speak for for itself I think are women better scientists are they more precise detail-oriented. People talk about women being more... Uh, in the kitchen, certainly, I've heard many a chef say um, women have a little bit less ego. They're more detail-oriented, mm-hmm. um, a little more easygoing. Yeah, I think, well, case by case, again, I don't like to, to generalize. Um, I think, you know, the, the ego part, I, I would definitely say yes, for sure. Um, so the fact that we can get rid of our ego easily than than men that's that's definitely a fact and that um that always helps in in science for sure and and especially as a science as a scientist sorry in industry because as a when you're a scientist in industry i think what what you need to do is really to broaden your expertise rather than going in depth in in your expertise yeah uh, because you know technology is actually uh, technology and, and engineering it actually works by leveraging and by connecting the dots and and so you you need to go broader and this means that growing broader that's you know the, the only way to do that is to get rid of your ego because you have to start over and learn from scratch again and surround yourself with experts that know more than you and and so that's already the exercise that you need to go through. And and so I think in this sense, yeah, women, we have an advantage uh, on, on being better uh, at generalizing or being a, a general scientist, I would say. This, this I, I think we play with a bit of an advantage there because of that precisely. It's always easy uh, as a scientist to go in depth. Uh, you know, everybody wants to be the smarter in the room. And it's your comfort area, and and so that if you are not able to get rid of your ego, uh, you cannot go broad. So that might work in academia. So in academia, for sure, that that's something that pays off. As as obviously, you know, highly specialized scientists is what uh, what is valued. But I think in industry, uh, it's it's the opposite. That's an interesting point you make about technology advancement being the ability to connect the dots across broad mm-hmm. things. And certainly the conversation we're having today right now about, you know, even what you need to do with a legume protein in order to extract it and get it and then make it and start using it is very complex. Um, that to be a broad expert versus drilling down on a single subject Mm-hmm. The benefit of that. It's an interesting one. Um, I've not ever heard it expressed quite that way. And I think it's really very smart point of view. So earlier this this spring, um, Hera launched the Good Rebel Tech, which is your new approach to food technology, which essentially is looking at many of the things we're talking about, sort of making the better, more nutrient dense, more sustainably produced 
plant-based mm-hmm. product, um, you know, without giving away any company secrets. Uh, can you tell us what you're working on for the future? Because we love to talk about the future and, and, and what's coming. Is it simply refinements that are going to happen in the process that we as consumers won't necessarily notice in the final product unless we lead the, read the, the label saying, oh, one day mm-hmm. is my plant-based burger going to jump from, you know, five grams of protein to 10 grams of protein. And that will have taken you, you know, three years of research on a chickpea <laughs> protein, but I, I, I may not even notice. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great Great point. No, for sure you will notice. I think that we definitely, uh, the only projects we have in, in the tech team are those that have high impact uh, to consumers. So I think we, we are operating in two different timescales, if you wish. So those that will will deliver in two years time, one, two years time is, is around this, around clean labels so, and, and nutritionally dense foods. And those are things you will absolutely see in the label and it will be completely different. Uh, it's something that you, won't, you have not seen in the market before. And those would be specific products that will either be truly clean label or will uh, be, you know, um, nutrient dense from both the macro and, and macronutrient perspective. This is one. And then on the more longer term is what I mentioned to you around side stream valorization and, and really, you know, truly being sustainable uh, and moving the, the needle there. Uh, that has obviously as well an impact on cost. So cost and, and affordability or affordable nutrition is really uh, our biggest challenge right now. But again, technologically, um, is, you know, it, it requires breakthrough technologies to get that, let's put it this way. So those type of projects will deliver in at least five years time. So this is the GRT. So this good drill dev is actually not one technology. It's a platform uh, uh, where we, you know, we use science for application and we are again working on this uh, two different uh, timescales with these uh, benefits. Yeah. So is ultimately the goal to not have any animal-based products and to mm-hmm. have a world with only plant-based food items? Yeah, that's it. That's why we call them successors, right, instead of uh, alternatives. So, yeah, that's definitely the mission of Eura, for sure. Is that across the board? I mean, you're you're sitting currently in Barcelona, which is one of the uh, renowned you know, food capitals of the world in one of the renowned food countries of the world. I've visited Barcelona many times and have always eaten very well there. Um, <laughs> you know, everything from the amazing hams and wines and cheeses and vegetables and fish and the uh, yeah. tapas and all those things. Mm-hmm. In a plant-based world, you know, jamón ibérico goes away, no? <laughs> well, it just gets another one, which is uh, our successor, and it doesn't go away. I think <laughs> it's just we get animal out of the equation, as they say. So, but yeah, but if you if you think about it, I mean, because we're rooted in in the Mediterranean um, cuisine, if you wish, what is the Mediterranean cuisine about? Is about you know high quality uh, raw materials and minimal process. And that's exactly what we're doing, or what we want to do, in fact, in, in our GRT. It's exactly that. So leveraging high-quality plant-based materials so that we get rid of all these processes in between and we can actually have truly minimally processed food. Um, and by doing that, you are intrinsically affordable and, and sustainable. So, yeah, 
that's that's our summary. So then is the goal then that that becomes, you know, Hamon and Manchego become <laughs> things that you only read about in books or you see in movies that don't actually exist anymore yeah. in the supermarket? Yeah, absolutely. That's the aim. How, how long do you think that would take? Or what is the general point of view about, you know, is that one generation? Is that two generations? Oof, I think, uh, you know, if I put my scientist hat, uh, I would say, yeah, I, I struggle to see a world where it will completely disappear. Um, but yeah, it's difficult to, to give you times. Um, but I think in definitely 10 years time, I think pretty much all the big challenges will be will be solved. I truly, truly believe that if we use science and, and you know, we use it correctly and, and we maximize the impact that science can have and um, I think we can be there in, in 10 years for sure. That's amazing to think about. Amazing to think about. It's also hard to know where we are in the curve or the wave of something happening. Um, it's easy to look back and pinpoint things in history of, oh, this is when agriculture started. This is when people started baking bread. <laughs> this is when we had the first you know, freeze-dried food or dehydrated or processed or canned. Um, and you can you can target those things, but we're very much in the middle of so many things right now in the world. We're in the middle of plant-based. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. We're in the mm -hmm. middle of looking at, you know, the environment and resources. Um, it's hard to know where we are in the curve and, and when we come out of it, what that looks like. Um, but it's certainly interesting to think about. Yeah, I think what, what is clear is that you know, nutritional affordability or availability as well of foods is the future. Now, how we get there is almost irrelevant. So whoever, you know, whichever means and whether it's plant-based or not, but I think it's really whatever the technology allows you to do, but those will be the ones that will survive. Uh, but what is clear is that we need to deliver on those. Um, and so, of course, I think plant-based, uh, you're in a better position to start with in terms of, for sure, sustainability. Uh, so, so that's why I think that the future is plant-based. But for me, it's really what technology would allow you to do. And um, yeah, the ones that will survive for sure. Well, Hera is certainly not alone in their point of view. We have mm -hmm. spoken with a number of international startup companies that are looking at plant-based and lab-grown alternatives to animal foods. If this is a topic that you're interested in, I would tell you to go back to the Tech Bytes archives and listen to episode 249, where we talk to the founders of two companies, Notco and Shiok Meats. Um, episode 252, which was our last episode of 2021, which was our predictions for 2022 episode. And we spoke with the founder of a company called Shiru and some of the women on her board, and they said the future is plant-based. Um, and then one last thing, which is actually quite interesting, and we didn't get to touch on it quite so much here today because there's so much to talk about. Um, our last episode, 267, we spoke with uh, the CEO and founder of Bread Alone, bakery, and they just spent several years converting their original bakery facility in Boyceville into a net zero energy, zero fossil fuel 
production bakery. And they are the first bakery in the country running with solar power and some other technology. They're not using any fossil fuels. And while Bread Alone has always been extremely thoughtful and dedicated to the stewardship of good product and being you know, good to the environment and to people, and the ingredients that they use have been top-notch. They're baking bread, sort of what I'll call, you know, like the old-fashioned way, albeit production. You know, they look, took a look at what kind of energy they're using. And, you know, in many ways, I think, you know, once we start looking, once we're, you know, maybe more or less satisfied with the quality of the food item we're eating, I think looking at how it's produced is, is definitely one of the next things consumers will be looking at. We're already concerned about how far our food has to come. Did it come on a boat, on a plane, or, you know, was it locally grown? Once it's locally grown, or once you look at the carbon footprint of, you know, how it got to you, you know, then how it's made, how was it processed? What was the energy expenditure for that? So, it's a complex system and there's a lot of different parts. And uh, here on Tech Bytes, we do our best to try and um, talk about little pieces of the puzzle and maybe learn something new and understand it a little bit better. I want to thank Isabella Fernandez, the Director of Science and Technology at Hera Foods, for calling in today from Barcelona. If you want to take a look at some of the work that she's doing, go to herafoods.com and follow them on social media at Hera Foods. TechBytes has more than 268 episodes in our archives. There are tens of thousands of episodes in the Heritage Radio Network archives. We have been live on the air since 2009. If you think this work is important and you learned something and you wanted to share it with someone, or you think you have a story to tell and this is a great platform for you, become a member. You know, I don't know. Give us what you spent on coffee today. If you made a $5 monthly donation for a year, that would help us make more radio. I'm Jennifer Leutze, and this is Tech Bytes. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.